Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. In today's program, we're covering many topics. A little bit about the United Auto Workers' successful strikes and contracts at the auto companies of this country. A talk about the National Realtors and a slap across their face and wrists that they got last week. A strike in Bangladesh and how it affects all of us. More on the competition between the United States and China and a remarkable vote in the United Nations. And that's all before we get to the second half, where we interview Professor Stephen Bezruchka about the healthcare system here in the United States. So let's jump right in. The United Auto Workers, I don't have to tell you because we've covered it and many others have, achieved really remarkable gains by going out on a brilliantly executed series of strikes against Ford, General Motors, and the parent of Chrysler, the Stellantis company, and winning stunning contracts, 25, 30, 35% increases and more, particularly for the lower paid workers, thereby making good on the commitment of the labor movement to equalize, to make for more genuine equality in a society that talks about it, but rarely does very much about it. But I want to talk about one particular dimension as a contribution perhaps others could have and should have made, but I didn't hear or see very often. Basically, what the United Order Workers achieved was clawing back much of what they lost over the last 10 years. This in no way diminishes their achievement. Many, many other unions are unable to do that, and they did it, and that's stunning. But if you put together what they lost from rising interest rates, what they lost these, I'm talking about the the auto workers, what they lost from the inflation, what they lost from the givebacks that they agreed to in 2008 and 9 with the crash then that took General Motors over the edge, as we all know, well, they've gotten much of that back, and that's an enormous achievement. But it is one that is frightening the auto companies and many other leading capitalists here in the United States because they're fearful that what the United Auto Workers did will embolden that union and others to seek to do likewise, to do better, to actually advance the economic condition of their workers, not only claw back what was taken from them. And so they're going to be looking, and I want to say this to my brothers and sisters in the auto workers union, the the companies are going to be looking for ways to claw back what they just had to give to that brilliantly executed set of strikes. And you know how they're going to do it? By undermining the ability of the unions and workers to stay afloat. Here's some of the ways. They're going to continue the inflation because the inflation eats away at whatever gains workers get by jacking up the prices to nullify the effect of getting more money in your paycheck at the end of the week, by keeping interest rates high, which eat into your income and your disposable income, 
by making you pay more for your auto loan, for your college loan, for your mortgage, for your credit cards, and all the rest. By high immigration, which brings in people who are able and willing to work for less than you have won with your strikes, and so offer a cheaper option to your employer who you can bet will take advantage of it, especially because if you have an undocumented immigrant, you can rip that kind of person off because they're afraid to go to the police. All of these and other measures will be pressured onto Republican and Democratic legislators alike and be sure they're going to look for ways to serve their business leader patrons. The union movement always has to watch out for that. The last couple of weeks were also bad news for the National Association of Realtors, the people who are the brokers between buyers and sellers of homes and businesses across the United States. A court in the state of Missouri came down with a powerful judgment. It basically said that realtors have cornered the market have behaved like monopolists. They've created a kind of unspoken agreement across the United States to basically collude with one another by demanding a uniform 6% commission on every kind of transaction that they broker. If you've bought a home recently, you've known that the agent who served you and the seller told you, if they were honest, about the 6% on top of the sale price of the home that you had to pay. The Missouri court said that's a restraint of trade. That is an interference in the market. It favors the realtor, but it hurts the people negotiating the buying and selling of property. And they find, here comes the punchline, they find Realtors, the ones that were involved in that case, $1.78 billion in penalties. And you can be sure realtors in every corner of the United States are now trying to figure out how to fight this, how to appeal this, how to blunt this, how to weaken the every conceivable way because it threatens their income. Okay, what's going on here is important to understand. Capitalism is a system based on profits. You know that. And as many have tried to say, one of the great things about capitalism, it gives an incentive to make profits. If you profit, you'll be more successful at a business. If you make profits, you'll have more money to use to grow your business. If you make profits, you'll have more money to pay yourself as the owner of the business, etc. And that lovely story has its truth, but it omits something which is equally true. That profit is an incentive for all kinds of bad behavior, too. Profit is the incentive to substitute a cheap and dangerous material in the building being constructed, a cheap and dangerous material in the food we eat, in the clothes we wear, in the transportation we use, causing us injury death. Profit is an incentive for all kinds of behavior. 
profit was the incentive of realtors to get together and create that minimum 6% to demand of everybody who buys and sells a home. And that's what the Missouri court was challenging. But I don't want folks to miss the message. Capitalism has always had the profit system, that's part of it, and the incentive that comes from being profitable. And that has led to as many illegal acts as legal ones, to as many dangerous, destructive acts as positive, growing acts. And this is what the lesson is of what the court there decided. But since capitalism is that way, it's always producing bad results, food that is unsafe to eat, drinks that are unsafe to drink, clothes unsafe to wear, cars unsafe to drive, and all the rest. And that's why we have regulations in the United States. That's why people have always turned to the government, do something, because the profit incentive is making my children sick from the milk they're drinking or the meat that they're eating or all the other things I've just listed. And so what has business done? fought against regulation at every turn, because then they can't do the profit incentive that they want to do. They want the freedom to do all of that, and we not be in a position to regulate it. So they evade regulation, block regulation, and once regulation is put in, they do a campaign that never stops about how regulations aren't so good either. We should go back to unregulated. Well, you want to go back to rubbing sticks together to make a fire, be my guest. I want to turn next to a faraway place that has very local implications. The country of Bangladesh, uh, the eastern half of what was once Pakistan, before all of that broke apart into two countries, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Bangladesh was on in the news in recent weeks because of strikes of the millions of garment workers. Bangladesh is one of the great producers of clothing in the world. And who was on strike? The workers who make the clothing. Who do they make the clothing for? Here's where we come in. Walmart, Gap, Target, Zara, and many more of the mass clothing stores in this country are selling you and me clothing made in Bangladesh. What is the minimum wage of a clothing worker now? Ready? $75 per month. Let me do that again. $75 per month. Why are they on strike? They want an increase in the minimum wage to $208 per month. That's right. Dirt cheap. Way cheaper than you can get an American worker uh, to produce clothing, which is why we are so dependent on clothing from these countries. Those workers want a decent life. And those workers are telling us something. And they're threatening us, even though they don't mean to. They're telling us that it's not sustainable in the modern world of telecommunications, radio, television, where we all know what's going on in the world, for some people to be living at $75 a month, making the clothing for the rich people in the world, or at least richer than them. This inequality 
the suffering that it bespeaks, the miserable housing and schooling that those people over there have to endure is not sustainable. It builds up levels of anger and rage that you can see exploding in the world around us. It's not smart for us to do that, and there's no excuse for Walmart or the others telling us how profitable it is to make clothes that are cheap and overcharge us for them. Okay, China. China produces rubber gloves. And we use them here in the United States in medical offices across the country. Once upon a time, Malaysia produced the rubber gloves that we use. Americans, here we go again, are too expensive as workers, and so the companies go elsewhere or import the gloves. Every country, United States and China and Malaysia, use a mixture of government help, low taxes, subsidies, regulations of one kind or another, together with the profit incentive. It's just that China plays the game better than many other countries, which is why our rubber gloves come from China. The last economic update I have time for today is a recent vote in the United Nations that teaches us a lesson. The vote was about ending the U.S. embargo against Cuba that prohibits Cuba from getting from the United States all manner of goods and selling. Here was the vote, 187 countries to end the embargo. They voted to end it. Two countries voted to continue it, the United States and Israel. One country abstained, Ukraine. Notice, Ukraine, Israel, the United States, completely isolated in the world. Be very careful, my friends. That kind of isolation is a sign of where the world is going. We ignore it at our peril. We've come to the end of the first half. Please stay with us. I think you'll think uh, you'll find the interview with Professor and Dr. Stephen Bezrucha very interesting. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. It is with great pleasure that I bring to our cameras and our microphones Dr. Stephen Bezruchka. Uh, Dr. Bezruchka teaches in the School of Public Health at the University of Washington in Seattle. He worked as an emergency physician for 30 years and also set up a teaching hospital in a remote district in Nepal. His studies now focus on what produces health in a population and why the United States has worse health outcomes than some 50 other countries, despite spending almost half of the world's total health care bill. He published this year, 2023, a book entitled Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. So first of all, Stephen Bezruchka, Dr. Bezruchka, welcome to our show, and thank you very much for sharing some of your insights with us. A great okay. pleasure to be here. Here's a question that has come at us, I don't know, for the last two to three years, at least once every other week, and it goes something like this. The United States health system being the health system of one of the richest countries on the planet, seems to have done really poorly in dealing with COVID. 
And everybody wants to know why, given the number of people who died, the number of people who got ill, the number of people suffering long COVID and all of that. Was it the president, Mr. Trump, at the time? Was it the government that had the bad, wrong policy? Or was it part of an older and larger problem of poor health in the United States? What does your research suggest is the explanation for the poor performance of the United States? So let's begin by uh, looking at the term you used, U.S. health system. That implies that there's some structure in the country designed to produce health. Now, health is different than health care. So I tell my students every time, when you use the word health, do you really mean health care? So we should be speaking about the U.S. health care system. And was it responsible for our shameful COVID outcomes? And that word change makes you realize we conflate the terms health and health care in this country all the time. Just think, we pay for health, access health, get health, insure health. We do nothing of the kind. We pay for health care, insure health care, get health care. So I always ask uh, the question, do you want health or health care? Because most people can't distinguish the two. So then we have to ask, how much does health care do for improving health? What is the evidence there? And the evidence is very strong that at best, in terms of averting death, health care accounts for at most 10% of the, of the uh, ability to avert death. And, uh, you know, since we spend, well, uh, in 2021, $4.2 trillion on health care, a sixth of our total economy, and which ends up being about half of the world's health care bill, we're consuming health care, and there's no reason that should provide health, 10% at best. So what about the COVID outcomes? Well, there's a lot. There are many studies linking COVID outcomes to economic inequality. Among the U.S. states, in a study in 2020, death rates were higher in the states that had higher income inequality. Among 84 countries, the same relationship was seen. There's something about inequality that uh, produces conditions that lead to worse health. And that's uh, you know the reason for the title of my book. Inequality kills us all. The kills us all implies there's none of us that can escape the toxic effects of inequality. Yeah, it sort of, it reminds me that because historically there's a mountain of evidence of that. That's why we know about, you know, great plagues and great other moments of, of collapsed health in the world because it affected everybody. If you let the poorer part of your people be sick, have bad health, you can't prevent the spread of that. There is no effective way really to do that. So it becomes self-destructive even for the rich to allow poverty because it will come back to bite them in the proverbial rear end. Okay, tell us a little bit more, if you will, because you've studied this. How would you summarize the link between inequality and the health of a population? 
So inequality forces us to make comparisons with others. That is, most of us have some sense of our income or wealth or assets, and we are constantly being forced, and there's an active process here, to make comparisons with others. This is especially apparent on social media, which you know, people are always representing themselves as uh, better than they actually are. And so, so people see this, and then they compare themselves, and that creates stress. And stress is really the, I call it the 21st century tobacco. Americans don't smoke very much anymore. And stress has replaced personal behaviors such as smoking cigarettes as really the toxic force. Now, stress is is there for a purpose. We have a stress response. You know, if suddenly the room I'm sitting in, you know, I'm in Seattle, so we're facing the big earthquake. You know, if suddenly the room started to rattle, which I was here in 1980 when we had a small earthquake, you know, I get out of the building really quick. And what would I wouldn't even have to think about it. There's a whole system programmed in your body to automatically do everything you can to get you out of trouble. Well, that saves your life. But turn it on uh, when you're stuck in traffic, when you're seeing how so many how rich some people are when you're waiting for the check to come in the mail or you're waiting for what the parole officer is going to say to your son. This happens all the time. You can't sort of run out of the building, so to speak, to save your life and then not be so stressed. Yes. And I never heard that before. That's wonderful. So the my guess is many people smoked in the 20th century to deal with stress, and now you take away the smoking because it could kill them, and they're left with the stress, which it turns out can also kill them. And you know, if you don't go to the basic conditions of life that cause much of the stress, not the kind of an earthquake, which we all have to deal with more or less equally, it is remarkable that there isn't more of an acceptance of the need to do something about social inequality, given that it has such a clear relationship to the health that we all, as human beings, seek to to have. It's it's just remarkable. Can you say a little more about the link between stress and health so that we we can pinpoint better? Because as an economist, I'm fascinated. I can show how the economy stresses people out in our economic system. I'm doing that. Half of every program is really that. So you're kind of doing the other half saying, okay, if this economic system stresses people out, you've got the information to say what the impact of that stress will be on the health we're all trying to, to achieve. So let's take a um, an example of how Economic differences or class differences produce different amounts of stress that are visually apparent. Studies have been done on air rage in passenger airplanes. So passenger airplanes, uh, some are have no first class seating. They're you know small planes not going too far. But most big planes have a first class and uh, coach class. Now, 
if you're on a jumbo jet and you enter the plane through the first class cabin, there's more air rage in first class. Those people who paid more money for those seats are very privileged, and they don't like to see us walking through there. If the entry is behind the first-class cabin, as on jumbo jets, then there's less air rage in first class, but there's air rage all throughout the plane. And what do I mean by air rage? Well, belligerent behavior, trying to smoke in the laboratory. Uh, you know, I, I've you know, in my years of flying, I've, I've observed people having physical confrontations even uh, in the plane. So the first studies appeared in 2016, showing that the presence of a seating difference in the plane produced more air rage than when there wasn't. And when you entered through the first class cabin, that was even worse for first class and for everybody else than entering behind. During the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, although flights were down, air rage increased tremendously. Similarly with road rage, you know, when, <laughs> I mean, we can take this a lot further, but stress produces biological changes in, in the body. And the, uh, the more stress you are under, the more these biological changes, like uh, there's, a chron there's a chronic stress hormone, cortisol. And the higher your levels of cortisol, the more stress you've been under. For example, you can take cortisol is deposited in the growing hair shaft. So you can take somebody's hair and section it in centimeter segments and measure it for cortisol levels. And, and for example, a study looking at men aged 50 to 59 admitted to the hospital with a heart attack or some other condition, they had their hair um, sectioned and assayed for cortisol. And the men who had the heart attack for the previous uh, few months were having increasing levels of cortisol. And then boom, uh, the, uh, you know, a clot blocked off an artery and they got a heart attack. So that's an example of how the more stress we're under, the more sickness or you know, bad things can happen. The science behind this is remarkably strong. Yeah, and it's equally easy to show that the poorer you are, the more the moments of your day, your week, your life are subject to all kinds of stresses and that what wealthy people often do is buy their way out of the stressful situation, whether it be buying the better seat on the train or the plane or buying the, the, the car. I remember the last time I took an economy flight being crunched up like a sardine in a can, obviously less likely to absorb the uh, effects of the people around me. The poorer people suffer more from stress, and you can look at biomarkers, uh, C-reactive protein being a common one that's measured clinically when you go see a doctor, and poorer people have higher levels of CRP, this uh, marker of, uh, of inflammation. You know, stress produces more of inflammatory processes. You know, I could go into the biology of that and the studies show that that's true. Now, just to come back to the thing, 
you know, people don't smoke much in this country. The people who do smoke are poor. And they, you know, they don't have this, they don't have the vacation islands to escape to. So they're the ones who light up the cigarettes, hoping for some stress relief. Dr. Bezrushka, I wish we had more time. We don't. We're out of time. But I think you've made a wonderful case, not only that we suffer from a health system that leaves a lot to be desired, but our underlying economy creates the problems for health that make an inadequate health system all the more of a problem we ought to have addressed. I hope you'll come back again in the future. I know my audience is entranced by all this information and what it means, and I want to say goodbye to you, but also to the audience. As usual, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.